Amen. Please be seated, and I would invite you to take... I need to make sure this is on now. Can you tell if it's on from back there? Am I on? No. It's green. That's all I got. We're going to go with it's on. Um, please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 will be our text for this morning. We'll look at the first four verses together. I wonder if there's a sense of uncertainty looking up here and not seeing a glass of warm tea. Does that make you feel as though something's missing? Perhaps? <laughs> I love tea, but just water for me today. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us now? Your servants are listening. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful, unimaginable, unspeakable things in your word. Lord, build us up in our most holy faith. Strengthen those who are weak. Encourage those who are faint-hearted. Convict and admonish those who are idle. Lord, continue to be patient with us all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't imagine that many of you will be familiar with the name Muhammad Adib. Muhammad Adib. A very unusual name, probably not from these parts. Uh, but it is a significant name in the history of biblical studies. In the winter of 1947, Muhammad Adib was looking for a sheep that had wandered from his fold in the hill area around Qumran in southern Israel. He was a Bedouin farmer, sheep herder, and as he was wandering around the wadis and cliffs of the area that his sheep had gone missing in, he saw a cave in the distance. And picking up a rock, as people do when they're out in the desert, bored, many of you, I understand, are in the military, so you know what it means to try to throw rocks into a cover from a distance. That's what he was doing. Threw a rock, and he heard pottery break in this cave several yards away. And it intrigued him. But he couldn't get to the cave because of the terrain, so he called his cousin, a man named Juma, and another friend, Khalil Musa, to help him explore the cave. And they lowered him in by a rope. And when they found inside the cave was several clay jars filled with papyrus scrolls with old Hebrew writing on them. They collected seven of them and took them back to their Bedouin camp, having no idea what they held in their hands. And so in order to make a little money, they went into town to try to sell them to somebody who might be interested in these old documents. 
They sold the seven scrolls to two different antiquities dealers, and they pocketed about $300, which was not bad in 1947 for a Bedouin farmer. <clears throat> Included in the sale, however, was a complete, intact, full manuscript of the book of Isaiah that was over 2,000 years old. Now, a Hebrew University professor of ancient Hebrew, Eliezer Sukunik, heard rumor that this was floating around Jerusalem somewhere, and he immediately began searching for these scrolls. When he found them, he was given an opportunity to look at them and to hold them, and I want you to hear how he describes his experience. Quote, My hands shook as I started to unwrap one of them. I read a few sentences. It was written sentences. It was written in beautiful biblical Hebrew. The language was like that of the Psalms, but the text was unknown to me. I looked and looked, and suddenly I had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll which had not been read for more than two thousand years. He was looking, of course, at the Isaiah scroll. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like he describes, being given the opportunity to touch or view something that's valuable or precious, something you never thought you'd be able to see. Some artifact or a beautiful painting if you've traveled the world and gone to museums and other places and you see something you've only ever seen a picture of or only ever heard of in stories, but you get to see it firsthand for yourself. Maybe look at it with your own eyes or touch it with your own hands. Whatever experience you may have had before probably pales in comparison to the description that this gentleman uh, gives for his experience in holding this famed Isaiah scroll in his own hands. A, a, a scroll that hadn't been handled by a human being in 2,000 years and contained the entire text of the book of Isaiah. Now I want to encourage you to think now about what we just read in 1 John chapter 1. Perhaps your hands didn't shake and your knees didn't tremble, and your heart didn't flutter in your chest when I read these words. But I think it should have. Mm -hmm. This text, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, more than any discovery in human history, more than any Dead Sea Scroll, contains the most priceless and unimaginable treasure <laughs> in all of human history. It tells us of unimaginable joy that is to be had by each of us in laying hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you this morning to be keenly aware of its value so that the next time you read God's word, read this text in particular, your hands might begin to tremble and your knees might give way and you might cry out from the depths of your heart in worship. I believe that when Christian people come to fully realize the magnitude of what John is saying in this text, we won't be able to help but marvel at the goodness and loving kindness of God. And that's what I want to show us this morning. Today, I want to spend our time talking about a subject of imminent importance, of utmost importance. It's a subject on which we might spend hours and days and months and years and yet never fully plumb its depths. It's a subject about which we owe our highest esteem and our greatest thoughts and will spend our eternal joy celebrating. This morning, we're standing on holy ground looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to make for us three observations about what the gospel does for us, what it means to us, what it is that we believe in. Firstly, the gospel is objective truth. 
And this is important for us to realize in a day where truth has lost all semblance of objectivity. Secondly, the gospel has relational implications. And third, the gospel brings us joyful satisfaction. Let's talk first about the gospel being objective truth. The historical context of this letter is that John is writing to fight the false gospels that are beginning to penetrate the Christian church in the, in the late first century. Spreading throughout Asia Minor, these churches are being led astray by gospels other than the one that Jesus himself proclaimed, other than the one that the apostles were writing about in their letters to the churches. And so John is writing in this time in history that's not dissimilar to ours, where people are hearing versions of the gospel, versions of Jesus Christ that sound a lot more like them than they do like him. And they're being led astray because that's the way we are. Our passions and desires draw us toward the thing that images us the most. And these people in, in the churches John is writing to are, are experiencing the same problem. In fact, John is so interested in ensuring that his hearers are focused solely on the gospel of Jesus Christ that he omits all standard greeting in this letter. Do you notice that? Paul normally begins a letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the faithful saints in such and such a town, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John says none of that. He just says, the gospel, you need to believe it. It's that important. It's so significant that John omits standard uh, cursory greetings and instead just says, let's get down to business. You need to be reminded of what the real gospel is and who the real Jesus is and what it means to believe in this word. All the formalities are gone, and he begins with the subject that occupies the bulk of his letter. And perhaps we should learn from this approach to sharing the gospel. Perhaps we are guilty of spending far more time leading people down a long and windy road, hoping that eventually the conversation will naturally lead to the main point, which is the gospel. Rather than getting in there and recognizing that the person that you're communicating with may have a limited amount of time left on this earth, and sharing the gospel is the most important thing that you can do with them in any given moment. John does not hold back. Perhaps there are those here. Now, I believe John is being written to believers. He says in chapter 5, 13, I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may have assurance of your salvation. But to any unbelievers that are present, John is not sugarcoating his message. He's not giving them a contextualized message. He's not asking them a lengthy series of questions to elicit heartfelt responses so he might open the door for a kind of soft-pedaled gospel message. Rather, he is telling them this is the truth and you need to believe in the truth. What a lesson for us to pay attention to in a day where we're more afraid of offending people's sensibilities by sharing the truth about sin and hell and salvation and eternal life and joy in the presence of God. We need to approach gospel witness the way John does, getting to the point. The same may be true within the Christian community and not just outside of it, not just evangelism, broadly speaking, outside of the church. But what about the one-on-one -on -one discipleship and counseling we do with each other over coffee and at the table and over meals and in the parking lot after church? Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 gives us a list of the sort of people that we're going to encounter in our day-to-day -day experience in the Christian walk. Some of them are idle. In other words, they're stuck in their sin and unable to get out. They're marking time right where they are, loving the sin that, that takes hold of their heart. And they need to be admonished, told directly 
You need to stop this sin. Galatians 6.1, you who are more spiritual, when you see someone caught in a sin, come alongside them and lead them out of it. But we don't want to upset our friendships, especially in smaller churches, especially where there may be families that are related to families that sit on opposite sides of the churches. And so we kind of step back and say, well, I'm not going to be as direct maybe as I need to be. Now, of course, none of this dismisses the need to be gentle and kind to one another and build one another up through gracious speaking, as Paul says in Colossians uh, chapter 2, let your speech be seasoned with salt. But it does mean we need to tell people the truth because that's what we need to hear. That's what they need to hear. That's what you and I need to hear is the truth, and that's what John does. He says the gospel is objective historical fact. Listen to the way he describes it. It's from the beginning. This is not some gospel that's been made up by men. It's not a theory that a handful of folks in the middle of the first century began to formulate just so they could be persecuted unto death. It's a true story about a Jesus that they saw. We saw with our eyes. We looked on him. We touched him with our hands. This word of life was made manifest to us. And we're telling you what we have seen and heard and know to be true. The gospel is objective truth. And in a day where objective truth has lost all sense of moorings, we need to be reminded that the gospel we believe in is not flexible. It's not fashionable. It's not amendable. It's not contextualable. It is true. And it's the gospel that's been handed down to us once for all to the saints by those who witnessed Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection. It's a true objective gospel. It's the, the gospel that John himself, this Jesus Christ who is from the beginning. Now he's alluding, of course, to Genesis 1.1, the creator Jesus Christ. The one who in the beginning made all things in Genesis, who again Colossians tells us uh, created all things. And John in his gospel tells us that not, without him not one thing was made that was made. That Jesus from the beginning. He's the one, John the author here, that leaned back against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper and whispered into his ear, who's going to betray you? That's how close they were. It's objective truth. It's eternal in its origins, this gospel of Jesus Christ. It is thus a fixed and unchanging message. And hear this. It is in no need of improvement or modification. You will drive the streets of Fayetteville, drive the highways of North Carolina, travel the world wide, and find churches that stand behind this word and behind a pulpit that looks like this and have hymnals that are pretty similar to this one and pastors who wear suits or some other various uh, sort of normal dress, and they will tell you a gospel that has been modified. Mm -hmm. They will preach to you a gospel that is a half-truth sold to you as a whole truth. And John says, no. This gospel, it's old, and it doesn't need to be fixed. It's from the beginning. Amen. And we saw it, and we know it, and we laid hold of it and touched it. And one of us among us put his hands in the hole in his side, and we're telling you about that gospel. I'm telling you now this morning about this gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God took on flesh and came down for us and for our salvation as a redeemer, a prophet, a priest, and king, to fulfill every Old Testament promise to be made yes and amen in him, that those who place their faith in this Jesus Christ can have eternal life, eternal life. This is what he says. This life was made manifest to you, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was, which, which was with the Father. What good news. Unchanging news. 
John here sets the gospel against the allure of novelty and reminds us that the true gospel is an old, old story. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, says, We did not devise myths or follow clever myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses. John wants his readers to believe the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. And he says it as plainly and as passionately as he can. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've touched it. I know it. It was made manifest, made apparent to me. And I'm proclaiming it to you, he says in verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. Notice in verse 2, John repeats this word here several times. The life was made, it begins in verse 1, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to you eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. The gospel itself is a message about life, isn't it? And that's what everybody wants. Listen to popular music. Watch movies. Read books. Watch the news. Engage your neighbors. And you'll discover that at the root of everyone's clamoring and clawing in this world, what they're trying to do is lay hold of a better life. People want money because they think they'll have a better life. And they chase after it. People want adrenaline because they think that it will make their life more fulfilling or meaningful, and so they pursue it. People want enjoyment, and so they entertain themselves to death seeking life. They want satisfaction. They want friendships to give meaning to their life, a goal or purpose to orient their life around, a retirement so they might have an easy life in their waning years. And the loss of life is what most people fear above all else. What if this thing kills me? What if I lose a child? Myself, my wife, and I, we have four children. Three of them are boys. They have decided amongst themselves that helmets are for wimps. We're, at a, we're constantly at risk of one of our children crashing into the driveway or the street or a car or something crazy. And as a father... It causes a fear in my heart, a real fear that I have to give to the Lord, trusting that he is the God of life, even the lives of my covenant children. What if I lose my spouse? What happens to me after I die? I pastored a church in rural Montana for several years, uh, a small bedroom community on on a railroad, about a thousand people, a little bit more, one four-way stop sign in a general store. Small church similar to this. And I was standing outside one weekday just enjoying the sun and and thinking, walking around the sidewalk around the church and praying. And a gentleman walked by me. I had never met him before and I never saw him again after that day. He was staying at an Airbnb down the road because he was visiting some family from out of town. And when he just struck, struck up a conversation, we started talking about where he was from and what he did. And he asked me where I was from and what I did. And I said, well, I'm a pastor of this church here. And he said, I don't know. If you have answers to this, uh, totally unprompted, he said, but I am terrified of dying. It's interesting that an unbeliever walking by a church would think to himself that his fear of dying might be solved in the church of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it should be because it is 
only here. There's only life to be found in Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among heaven, under heaven, by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. And it's life that John wants you to have. Life that he proclaims. Life in Christ. He is the word of life. Eternal life. His death defeated death. Death is no longer the last chapter in our book. Rather, it's the first chapter in the book of eternal life. Because Jesus has victory over death itself. The reality of the Christian gospel is not subjective, it is objective. It's an eternal, objective truth that was made manifest that John is attesting to here, and it is irrefutable. But beyond being eternal life, some ethereal sort of pie in the sky, by and by, I hope when I die, I look at Jesus with my eye. The gospel is relational. It's personal. It connects you and me and you and one another and us and all Christians throughout the ages. In the middle of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached the book of 1 John. He preached five sermons on verse 3 alone. We proclaim this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Think about those words for a second. That the result of believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. Now, if that doesn't floor you, and I mean really cause you to tremble a little bit, I'm not sure you grasp fully the depravity of mankind or the holiness of God Almighty. You know, there's no version of God appearing to someone in Scripture where they respond by being like, Hey God, how's it going? So glad you're here today. Oh, you're like my best buddy, God. I am, I'm so glad to see you. You're my co-pilot, uh, homeboy, whatever t-shirt was popular back in the ancient Near Eastern times. Rather, when John, this, this John here, who wrote the book of Revelation who was one of the closest apostles with Jesus himself, when Jesus appears to him, the risen Christ appears to him on the island of Patmos as he's penning the book of Revelation, John says, I saw the Lord risen and I fell down like a dead man before him. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of of an ancient Near Eastern wealthy man living in a pagan land worshiping the moon sacrificing to all these uh, pantheon of gods, hoping that life will go well for you. So you and your wife, you have no children. She is old and you are older. You've got kind of a knucklehead nephew. And your father recently died. And the God who made heaven and earth appears to you and says, Hey, Abram. I want you to be mine, and I want to be yours. He chose you out of his eternal love for no other purpose than to display his mercy and grace and to bring glory to his holy name. And we have fellowship with him by simply believing in the gospel. We have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. He is the creator And we're created. He is perfect and holy. 
and we are sinful in all of our faculties. He is above, higher than the heaven of heavens, and we are below, confined to this earth. Gravity holds us to it. He freely moves about the universe, and we're stuck in one place at a time. God is life, it says here in this text, and we are dead in our trespasses. In other words, God is God, and we are not. The chasm that separates mankind from God is wider than the span of the universe. Has anybody observed these new photos that are coming from this brilliant telescope that's been sent out into space, which is really upending a lot of theories of the Big Bang and so forth? If you're not read on this, I encourage you to. It's quite fascinating how these new photos are kind of upending the scientific community's thinking about time and space and light and distance and so forth. Our God is farther away from us ontologically than the farthest nebula that this telescope has taken a photo of. If you were to launch off this planet like Superman and fly out into outer space, miles, dozens of miles into the sky, and go past our nearest uh, planet at the speed of a rocket ship, it would take you two and a half years to get there. And then you have to keep in mind that you need to go past six other planets past that just to get out of our solar system and you're still stuck in a tiny little circle in a pinwheel tail on a galaxy that would take you over a million years at 10 times the speed of light to get to the middle of not across god made all that by speaking if you were to go a million times the speed of light it would still take you Billions of years to get to the other side of the universe from where we are. And you would be no closer to God than you are right now. God is God and we are not. And do you know what he says to us in his son, Jesus Christ? I want to have fellowship with you. I want to be in relationship with you. Fellowship with God. My friends, if this does not warm your hearts to the deepest depths, I don't know what possibly could. The God who made everything looked at you and 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 me. And he said, I want you to be mine and I'm going to be yours forever. We have fellowship with God. This is not a I feel good in my heart about my relationship with Jesus fellowship. This is not a, my Jesus would never tell me that or never ask me to do that thing or never ask me to give up this sin or vice. This is adoption into the wealthiest family ever with the greatest brother and sisterhood ever. Fellowship with God. Octavius Winslow, in contemplating this text, asked the question, what, Lord, after everything I have done, would thou have fellowship with me? If you were able to look inside my heart and know who I am under these clothes and under this skin in ways that not even my wife and children do, you wouldn't want to have fellowship with me in the same drive through line at McDonald's, <laughs> let alone eternal fellowship around a table with Jesus Christ. And God knows more about you and me than we could possibly know about each other. He knows every one of your dark secrets and sins, all of your fears and failures, 
all of your mistakes, all of your high-handed sins, and even your hidden faults that you would never know are a sin if he would reveal them to you. And yet, out of his mere good pleasure he did from eternity past, choose to elect you unto salvation in his son Jesus Christ, that you might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son forever. There is no greater joy to be found on earth, no greater satisfaction, no greater wealth to be found than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace. We have fellowship with with God through the gospel because of his great grace. But there's another dimension to this. Our fellowship with God in the gospel is principally a horizontal dynamic. Our fellowship is with God through Jesus Christ who was with God in the beginning and came down for us and for our salvation and has ascended to the throne and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from which he will come to judge the living and the dead, right? We have fellowship with that God vertically by faith. But what John says here is not worth passing over quickly. He says, we proclaim this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. With us. Those who saw him and know him. And experienced him and touched him and laid our eyes on him and spoke with him. In other words, the, the, horiz- the gospel is a horizontal thing as much as it's a vertical thing. We enter, you and I, in the 21st century, enter into fellowship with the apostles when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Which means we enter into fellowship with the church of the Old Testament, like Abraham, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I are in fellowship by virtue of our union with Christ Jesus with all of those brothers and sisters in Uganda today who have faith in Jesus Christ. And if God in his kind providence allows this world to continue to spin for another thousand years, guess what? Your great, 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 great covenant grandchildren will have fellowship with you and with Jesus and with David and with Abraham. And one another. It's what our confession calls the communion of the saints. We share in Christ with the invisible church throughout the ages fellowship with one another. Do you realize that when we read the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 23 this morning, we were joining our voices together with those men from the 1640s at the Westminster Assembly who wrote those questions. What went through their mind as the Spirit guided them to write down a system of doctrine and helpful questions and answers for the church and their children. That those men were thinking about the same Jesus that we love. And we have fellowship with them. When we sang our songs this morning, Psalm 130 was penned by David some 3,000 years ago. And we joined our voices together with him as we sang. What songs we'll sing as we close the service. Joy to the world. We join our voices with those believers across the world and throughout time who have sung those same songs. Friends, when sometimes it feels like the culture is dominating and the church is growing smaller and her candle is getting dimmer and the persecution is becoming harder and the fellowship that we share, the sizes of the churches shrink, the distance between faithful churches increases and it feels like we're all alone, do you not realize that in Christ you have fellowship with every saint who has and will and does ever live. We are not alone. We are not alone. Now, this shouldn't be lost on you. 
without a show of hands, I imagine that there's a good number of you, I can tell by haircuts and the way you're looking at me, you're in the military, or at least you were at one point. And that's, that's good. I, have, I love the military. And, and I should have said earlier on a day like today how proud I am to be able to preach in a church filled with men and women who have committed their lives to serving the freedoms that God has provided us in this country after such a great tragedy as 9-11. But it's much like joining the military. Some of you are Army vets, and you sit in a room with men who are active-duty Army soldiers, and you think to yourself, We've got something together that's intangible. And you can be anywhere in the, world, in the world and see someone walking towards you and go, I know, I can tell, you were or you are in the military. And there's a camaraderie that exists there. This transcends that, our fellowship with one another in Christ. <clears throat> there's a story, um, and I, I, I do, I wish I had thought about this before this very moment, but there's a story about a, a battle, I believe it was in Virginia, uh, during the Revolutionary War, and there's a captain walking down the, this battle-destroyed street, and there's fire in buildings, and, and you can hear people uh, crying on the sides and medical tents and so forth being cared for, and he's walking down the road, and he sees a private walking towards him, and they pass each other on the road, and the captain stops and says, Private, stop. He said, What's the chief end of man? And the private said, To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, sir. And he said, I knew you were a Westminster Shorter Catechism boy by the way you carried yourself in the midst of this battle. I could tell that you knew the truth about who God is and his sovereignty over your life, even in the midst of battle. And the young private said, I was thinking the same thing about you, sir. There's a communion, a fellowship that we share in Christ that transcends any sort of earthly fraternity or sorority or fellowship. Our fellowship is with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough, He adds to our blessing the fellowship of one another. So I ask you this morning, my friends, do you treat those Christians nearest to you with a sort of affection and love that a text like this compels us to? Or do you find yourself increasingly frustrated with the people in the pew or the seat behind you or in front of you or across from you because of their particular idiosyncrasies and habits and disappointing attributes. Husbands, do you treat your wives like fellow heirs of the grace of God in Christ Jesus? That your principal relational dynamic with your wife is not marriage, but brother and sister in Christ. That all of the one another commands of Scripture come to bear in your home as you look at your wife and treat her as a reflection of the image of God in Christ Jesus. And wives, your husbands, children, your parents, do you know that your parents are far more than just the authority that God has placed in your life until you grow up and leave the home and move on and marry someone else and start your own family? Rather, your parents in Christ, you have fellowship with them in Jesus it's the, the Bible's impetus to young children and to husbands and wives is far more than honor your parents and fathers don't exacerbate your children and wives submit to your husbands. Rather, it's outdo one another in showing honor. Be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving one another in Christ Jesus because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Let no, no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth towards one another. All of the one another commands are relevant in the horizontal dynamic of the church. And so I want to encourage you as you think about your brothers and sisters here at this church. 
and those in other churches around this town and those in other churches around the world, that you would not be, that we as believers in this age would not be known as divisive, tribal, fortress-building churches, but rather fellowshipping, relational, horizontally inclined churches because of our love for one another in Christ Jesus. Don't be the one that gets to heaven and finds yourself spending the first million years gasping in shock at who's there with you. Rather, love them now. Love one another, as the Bible would say. Finally, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with one another, which leads us to experience the unimaginable joy of gospel believing. The gospel brings joyful satisfaction, John says in verse 4. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, you may think it would make more sense if John were to say, we're writing these things to you so that way your joy would be made complete in believing the gospel. And there's truth to that. In fact, there are some manuscripts uh, that we have and some translations will have a little footnote that says, our may be translated yours. Uh, Because there is evidence that John could have been saying either one. And in fact, I would argue that both are relevant. As John shares the gospel to us, his readers, to these folks, his recipients, their joy is made complete by their increased faith in Christ. As they experience the blessed assurance of what it means to know that their salvation is secure and that Jesus is the man he claimed to be and that fellowship with one another is real and tangible and important, our joy increases. I could hear it in your voices and see it in your faces as we talk about fellowshipping with other believers around the world. Many of you went, that's right, we do, don't we? We have fellowship with the saints. Right now, we're getting ready to sing songs with saints of old and with saints in glory now. Our voices join with theirs. And that ought to increase our joy as we contemplate more in depth on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, of course our joy is increased. To know and comprehend the gospel should give us great joy. My friends, let this be a sort of litmus test in your own life. When you think about the gospel, do you feel joyful? Do you feel joyful about the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's the sort of joy that's unexplainable that's incomparable, that's unimaginable. It's a joy that exceeds the joy you you feel when you're in the presence of someone you love. It exceeds the the sort of joy that a young baby feels when it's held by its father and calms down. It's a sort of unique joy that that is otherworldly, isn't it? And it should be. Now, I don't mean to put on you a burden of emotionalism where you feel like if I don't have some sort of big grin on my face every time I read my Bible, I don't really love God that much. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about the comfort, the sort of joy that passes understanding, the awareness of God's everlasting and all-loving and unimaginably powerful arms surrounding you moment by moment, holding you in his hands, leading you in the paths of righteousness, bringing you to the place that he has intended for you to go. That sort of joy. Do you have joy in God and in his son, Jesus Christ? The sort of joy that allows you to approach old age with a sort of steadfast resolve to finish well. The sort of joy that allows you to get that diagnosis from the doctor and you say, come what may, God be glorified in my life, whether by life or by death, as Paul says. The sort of joy 
that goes to a funeral with the same eager anticipation of reuniting with that person in heaven that you approach a wedding. The sort of joy that turns the news off at the end of the night and doesn't go to bed with a heart full of anxiety, but a heart full of confidence in a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The gospel brings us joy. But on the other hand, what John says here, I'm telling you so that my joy may be complete, that's true too. Friends, sharing the gospel is an aspect of believing in the gospel. The great Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, in one of his most (laughs) confrontational statements ever that he wrote in his book, The Reformed Pastor, said, If you are not telling the people around you about your faith in the gospel, then I personally would question the legitimacy of your faith claim in the gospel. Now, that's Richard Baxter's words. But what he's alluding to is a fair point, that if we have great joy in believing and knowing who Jesus Christ is, and we really actually believe that the only way to eternal life is through him, then wouldn't you find immense satisfaction and joy in telling other people about that same gospel and seeing them come to faith in Christ also? When you look out there in the world, there's a neighborhood across the street over there, and it's filled with people who are going to one of two places at the end of this earthly life. And you can dismiss them out of hand and deny their image barrenness, the fact that God created them in his image, Or you can think to yourself, what if the person in in that house, I see a blue trash can out that window. What if the person in that house right there has the most angelic voice, the most kind disposition, has the broadest shoulders to carry the burdens of people around them? Wouldn't it be wonderful if they were here in this church with us? And wouldn't it be even better if they spent eternity in heaven? What joy we would receive by experiencing the outpouring of their spiritual gifts in this place. If that's what you desire, if that's the sort of goal that you have, that you want your joy to be complete as more people are brought into the family of God, well then, friends, the answer is simple. Do what John is doing here. Tell other people about the gospel. The gospel gives us an impetus to go out into the world and call unredeemed sinners into salvation that we might experience the blessing of their fellowship with us. Everyone here has a gift. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 says, As each has received a gift, let him use it in the church for the building up of the saints, whether one speaking is speaking the very oracles of God, he says, and so on and so forth. Each of you has a gift from the Spirit for the building up of this body. And the rest of you benefit through the exercise of those gifts. How much greater benefit would you have to experience new faith and new fellowship brought into the communion of saints that we might all grow in grace together. Our joy is made complete when we share the gospel. In other words, the gospel gives us a missionary spirit, doesn't it? Or at least it should. Matthew Henry said this, the benefits Christ bestows are not like the scanty possessions of the world, causing jealousies in others, But the joy and happiness of communion with God itself is all sufficient so that any number may partake of it. And all who are warranted to say that truly their fellowship is with the Father 
will desire to lead others to partake of that same blessedness. Let me offer you three then challenges as we close. Number one, I hope that each person here from the youngest child to the oldest member believes in the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you know that it's true and that there's salvation nowhere else but in him. John's desire for you is to love the brethren. Those sitting to your left and right and front and back and those outside of these walls. To love one another because your fellowship is with one another in Christ Jesus. Love the brethren. And finally, be joyful. Be joyful as you consider what the gospel has gotten for you. Eternal life. Fellowship with God. And each other. And if that's true, then we should go from this place into our places of work and our communities and into the world telling others about that same gospel. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the words of the Apostle John that encourage our hearts and increase our joy. Would you help us, Lord, each of us here, to be the sort of people whose faith is unshakable as we believe in the unshakable and objective truth of the gospel, that our fellowship would be sweeter as we contemplate the gift that each other is in Christ Jesus, that we would spend time meditating on the reality that our fellowship is with the Father through the gospel, what unimaginable truth this is. And Lord, would you give us each a missionary heart that we would go out and see others' joy completed even as we tell them about the only way and truth and life, who is your Son, he who is from the beginning, which has been seen and heard and made manifest, in whom we believe, your Son, 